the sooner you can get to those decisions and they're hard ones to make, you know, the better. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook presented by Details Interactive. Here you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 32, and today's guest is Brian Berger, CEO and founder of Mac Weldon. Before we get started, a quick thank you as always to Max Branstetter of the Wild Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at maxpodcasting.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready, break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook podcast. Today, I'm joined by Brian Berger, founder and CEO of Mac Weldon. Mac Weldon is a lifestyle brand for men that is reinventing men's basics with premium fabrics, smart design, and simple shopping. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Really excited to be here. Uh, so we're recording at the uh, early part of March uh, 2021. How are you and your family doing, Brian? Doing well. I was. Um, we were just remarking uh, that it's literally almost a year to the day since we closed the office. Just been crazy to think how long it's been um, and how much has transpired. And it's nice to finally be seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. Um, so I think there's some level of optimism now. Uh, your office is in New York City. What's your sense of people coming back to the office in New York? Yeah, I think there's a general desire for people to get back out into the world and do the things uh, that you know were more typical before all of this. Uh, but with that said, I think there's a lot of things that we've learned about remote work and sort of debunking the sort of myths about productivity when people are working from home. Um, and I think what that will, will result in is a, a work environment that looks different from what it looked like prior to this. I mean, we're not going to be a virtual workforce, but we're also not going to be, um, you know, five day, 40 hour, five day a week, everyone clocking in and out type of environment either. So it's interesting that you went there because one of the questions I was going to ask you later in, in the show, but I, we might as well just do it now and then we'll come back to uh, how I like to start the show. But what, what lessons have you learned in the business, you know, throughout the pandemic that, you know, things that may have changed for the better in the way you manage day to day? Well, what I've learned is that we have a really resilient um, and adaptable team. You kind of know that, you know, because you're navigating challenges all the time together, but um, having everyone be able to go from hanging out at a happy hour in the office, clinking glasses, um, to celebrate the close of a quarter to being, you know, remote for a year um, is a pretty big shift. The resiliency and the ability for people to really, you know, innovate at a time where they're not able to come together has been awesome to watch. And it's, you know, it really makes me believe that a lot of these just sort of conventional uh, ways of doing things are, you know, always up for debate, should always be up for debate now because, you know, we've just disproven so many things. 
Yeah, you know, in, in folks that I've talked to and I've seen it firsthand, you know, customer service is one example where, you know, businesses were so opposed to, you know, having customer service people work from home, perhaps for a lot of reasons, you know, they wanted them all to be in a call center uh, in one under one roof. That's one thing that I've seen change. What, what about creative execution and, and you being able to, you know, do product shots and, and other things? What have you had to change there? Um, it's hard in a sense that at the beginning it was very difficult. I mean, we were able to, uh, the photographer that does our, our, our lay down photography for the website so that we can actually like put a product up and sell it. You know, he was working throughout the whole thing. He's kind of a one man band with the studio, but anything that involved multiple people and, you know, lifestyle, creative shoots. I mean, a lot of that is, was really on hold for a while. Um, and you were sort of having to make do with with what you had, uh, you know, on hand. And 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 what's you know what's great about that for us is it forced our team to be really creative. And we were able to actually produce some really really significant creative during a time when we couldn't have any new shoots. We we launched television advertising using you know old uh, video um, content that we had of customer testimonials, right? So now we've tested that channel. We're smart about it. And we can do, you know, different types of creative execution now that things are better, but we never would have known that if we didn't, we weren't able to do this test and we weren't being really scrappy during that time. Great. So we, we jumped uh, head first into the Mac Weldon discussion, but let's take a step back for a moment, if we could tell me something about you. So our listeners can get to know you a little bit, Brian, something that you might think is remarkable or fascinating about, you know, either you personally or something that you've done in your career. The quick story is I wanted to be a lawyer, but I also wanted to learn about the internet. Uh, and so while I was studying for in the year prior to uh, post-college, I was studying for the, the LSAT entrance, the entrance exam, but I also got a job working for what became one of the largest uh, early uh, internet companies called Excite, which became Excite at Home. It was one of the you know large internet portals uh, they were called at the time. That really set me off on, you know, uh, you know, a career that's largely been based in consumer internet businesses, really understanding the business model and the, you know, um, ways in which you engage customers in a digital experience. And, you know, never really thought about going into law as a profession, but it was just interesting that I was, I was focused on taking this exam to go to law school. And this was just like a little bit of an exploration. And what ended up happening was, you know, really became the foundations of, you know, the entire career that I've had. And and so uh, Excite was one of those early uh, brands, which I remember. And then you spent time at both WebMD and Comcast. So take us a little bit through what you were doing in, in each of those businesses. Yeah, so Excite, I started out, I was literally like, anything you wanted, I would do. It was my first job out of college. But our the office that we built uh, in New York City is a San Francisco-based company was the largest revenue, became the largest revenue producing office for the company. So it was largely ad sales, sponsorship and advertising sales. And then from there, I moved out uh, to the headquarter office and was doing business development uh, and some strategy work, some more like partnerships, um, you know, putting, you know, um, deals that were not purely based on impressions and, and sort of media spend. And then I went back to graduate school, to Columbia Business School, just to you know, it was a good time to go. The internet, first wave of the internet was kind of, the bubble was bursting. I had had this really great experience in this high growth company. You know, I advanced really you know, quite a bit. 
And it was just a great time to go back and just fill some of the gaps, skill gaps that I felt that I had in some of the hard skills, finance, accounting, and some other things that you don't really get in a liberal arts, you know, college. So I did that for two years and I thought, you know, the world's my oyster. I could pivot and go into banking or consulting or go back into, um, you know, an industry type role. I ended up going to work for the second coming of WebMD, which was at the time it was being run by a guy that I worked for when I lived in San Francisco. He was the CEO of the company. I didn't envision going back into, you know, um, you know, consumer, you know, digital media, which is really what the business model is. It's a content business, but the business was selling advertising and sponsorship. But it was a super cool role, and we got to grow the company and ultimately spun it out and to its own public, you know, um, entity, which was super cool. And then I left there to go to Comcast, which was much more of a, of a generalist type role. Role. Um, it was a strategy and development role where I was going to be responsible for, you know, sourcing and developing uh, acquisition targets for Comcast, uh, companies for Comcast to buy that would be advantaged by the vast resources that Comcast had. Why I was interesting for the role uh, was because I had depth of knowledge in, you know, internet business models. I had some, you know, the MBA piece. Uh, I worked in banking during my summer there. So there was, you know, elements that made sense for the role. And for me professionally, personally, I really wanted to be in more of a generalist type role because I was looking at this as the kind of last stop on my journey to like entrepreneurship. And I felt that in this role, I would get a really good sense for how deals get done, how financing gets done, what the world of venture capital is like, and what it's like from the standpoint of like, you know, a strategic looking at an early stage or a high growth emerging company to acquire. I just felt like all that would be really valuable. And it was all of that fantastic experience. So it sounds like you had a game plan to be an entrepreneur and now you were trying to acquire all the tools in your toolkit to be a good entrepreneur. I really did. I mean, that for me, it's kind of like kind of like a boring story, right? It's cooler if you're, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and you drop out of Harvard and you live in the garage and you build the thing and, you know, all before your 20th birthday. Uh, mine was a little bit more of the traditional path where I, I really did have a plan all along. Like if you read my business school application, it really speaks to uh, a career of like building skills and confidence to go off and do you know, my own thing one day. So that was really what it was about for me and, and very much a plan, as you say. That's great. Mac Weldon, describe Mac Weldon for those that might not yet know about your business. Yeah. So Mac Weldon is a uh, direct consumer uh, menswear brand focused on premium basics, socks, underwear, undershirts, tees, sweats, polos, all of the uh, essential wardrobe items. Um, and, and the business was really born out of my frustration as a consumer shopping for underwear and socks. I hated going to department stores. I could never find what I uh, bought the last time. No, what, why? I didn't understand why there was no one marketing these products like Nike or Lululemon or Under Armour uh, were marketing their products. And these are very functional items. Uh, and they really dictate a lot of how you feel and how you perform throughout the day. And everything that was out there was just like these weird sexually charged, you know, lifestyle ad campaigns. And it just didn't make sense to me. So you had sort of product, you had marketing and you had customer experience all with like double negative in terms of experience. And I just felt, you know, given my background, like there's got to be a better way to do this. Certainly e-commerce is a better way to buy these products. 
from a brand standpoint, there's really nobody speaking to performance and design and innovation in the way you know performance apparel companies do. So that's an opportunity. And then making it really easy to shop. Like guys love you know anything that's more convenient than going to a department store, sign us up. So that was really sort of how it all came to be. And, and that's what we do. We really just focus, we stay away from fashion. We stay away from categories where the sizing is really complex. We try and make it really easy for customers to get into a product. And then we really focus on trying to expand our relationship with that customer over time. And so as you, you think about starting the business, take us back to pre-actual launch, bootstrapping yourself, uh, fundraising. How did you get the, the funds to get going? Yeah, I mean, initially it was bootstrapping it myself and, and really putting my putting my money where my mouth was in a sense, because I just felt that in order to have any reasonable conversation with an investor or anybody who's going to partner with you in any way, you really just need to have certain things like it needs to be tangible in a certain way. So I invested my own money in a lot of things prior to actually speaking to, you know, a small group of friends and family and angel investors for that early part of, you know, of, of, of the business. But really it was about brand development, building out the website, getting the initial product line and assortment built, you know, thinking about fulfillment operations, you know, do, doing some early marketing and PR uh, and really just those bare things to just sort of prove it all out. And so, yeah, so I, I mean, I mainly funded it to the starting line. And then, you know, we, 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 we raised some small amount of money from angel investor and friends and family group to get to that, buy a bunch of inventory and launch, you know, actually launch the business. All right. You, you talk about, you know, your product staying away from, you know, fashion, you know, being more of a basics um, business. I'm going to imagine that over the last year, your business has done pretty well as, you know, people working from home and, and wearing the kinds of products that you sell. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, you know, certainly um, we're in the right product category at the right time, certainly related to COVID. But, but yeah, I mean, you know, we sell products that everybody wears, right? There's no more than 50% of our products, you know, every guy has, you know, in their wardrobe and, 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 and close to 50% of our products, like people wear every single day, right? Underwear and socks. They may not wear, you know, at our price point, but it's not a product that you have to convince people about or like get somebody over the hump about, right? You may have to get them over the hump about why should I buy a $24 boxer brief when I buy a five pack at Costco for that amount, but the, not the product itself. As you think about expanding or growing your business, uh, are there other categories, you know, product perhaps that can be worn to the office that are in the future? Yeah. I mean, we've, like I said, we've gotten licensed to do a lot more. You know, we launched uh, an Oxford shirt uh, last year that's done pretty well. We have a really awesome tech chino pant called the Maverick that was scheduled to launch in April of 20. We didn't do a big launch for it just because we felt that it, the timing related to COVID and everything wasn't great. So we put it up on the site and it sold really well. And we're excited for that product to start to play a bigger role in our bottoms, you know, assortment. You know, we have some outerwear pieces, you know, we, so it's not just, you know, innerwear uh, items. Um, you know, there's, a, there's other pieces to it that we we're seeing really strong adoption for. So, yeah, the sweats are really comfortable. I'm a, I'm a customer. Uh, nice. My wife made me a customer. Actually, she uh, she. You got to get the site. shorts now. 
Well, you know, it's funny that you you say that. I, she and I were out today, and I told her that I was uh, going to speak to you uh, today, and that I really wanted to try the shorts. They look great. Uh, the site really gives some good perspective of what they are and the feature and function of it. So uh, I'm I'm going to give them a try, and uh, and I'll let you know how they are. Do you have a direct to consumer business? I enjoy connecting with guests on this podcast because it reminds me what I love to do strategic and tactical consulting for businesses like yours. If you'd like to speak with me about your business and see how you can add a fresh set of eyes to your team, contact me at mark at detailsinteractive.com. Now let's get back to the marketing playbook. Been fortunate enough on the show here. I've done uh, low 30 uh, interviews now. A lot of CEOs. I've not really asked people this, but how do you describe your job? So you're CEO, you founded the business. What's your job description? <laughs> Cheerleader in chief and conductor of an or- of the orchestra, traffic cop. Uh, you know, those are a lot of phrases I use to describe what I do every day. You know, cheerleader in chief is really just kind of, you know, making sure that we're constantly rallying the team and making sure everyone's clear around what the objective is and really keeping them, you know, in a positive mindset. Uh, conductor of the orchestra is just, you know, again, small team, good communication, but but really making sure that everybody is kind of rowing in the same direction and is, is kind of clear about where we're going. Parachuting in where bridges need to be built. Um, yeah, and then this traffic cop is just like, you know, helping to make decisions. Teams do the best that they can, and hopefully we're creating some level of autonomy, but sometimes there are big decisions that need to be made. And so gather as much information as you can and you help move things along by making decisions. So you had this plan to be an entrepreneur. You must have had some perspective of what you thought it was going to be like. What have you learned that you had no idea you were going to need to know? And what's been different about what your expectations were? Hmm. Well, it's not as glamorous as it looks on TV. I'll tell you that much. (laughs) Not even close. A lot. It's all the good stuff, but it's also a grind. You got to fight every month, every quarter, every year to, you know, continually raise the bar. And that's hard to do. It's hard to do when you're resource constrained. It's hard to do when you're, you know, having to look for capital and convince people to back you. It's hard to do when you have key employees who, you know, may transition for one reason or the other. Like there's just a lot of moving parts. And so the good far outweighs the bad, but it is definitely an endurance sport. Any particular mistakes that, you know, come to mind? I don't think it's mistakes. I think some of the people decisions in the early days just are a lot harder. You know, I think once you're clear that somebody's not working out or it's time, you know, somebody's, you know, it's time for somebody to move on. Like the sooner you can get to those decisions and they're hard ones to make, you know, the better just because, you know, the resource that you have, you have capital and time or you're too most important resources in a early stage, you know, situation like, like ours, although we're not that early stage anymore, but in in those days, yes, like time wasted, you never get it back. Capital wasted, you never get it back. So you really want to maximize those two things. Most of your selling uh, today done at MacWeldon.com. You have a store at Hudson Yards. Any other stores on the horizon? Um, we love uh, physical retail is definitely a part of our, our our plan. Nothing beats the three-dimensional immersive experience that you can have in a store. And we find that it's 
not only creates, you know, really high quality, very loyal customers, but it's also just a great way to paint a much bigger picture for consumers. Um, so the way we think about it is three buckets. You have like owned and operated retail, which is like flagship retail and key markets that have certain characteristics that we like. You have kind of retail light, you know, could be, you know, more of a temporary, you know, type of pop-up type of thing. Or we have a partnership with a company called Neighborhood Goods, which is a collective of brands in some good markets. And then the third is just a more thoughtful wholesale strategy where we're, we're putting our products in somebody else's store, but doing it in a way that is much more um, at scale than what we're currently doing, which is very like one-offs. And I spent a bunch of time in, in businesses that were predominantly wholesale, also had direct-to-consumer and, and physical retail. Um, you know, one of the challenges is always when you're selling through other retailers is to control your story, to be able to tell your story in a consistent way. You know, is that something that you're thinking about? And, you know, you've got a, a, a very tight story. You want to control it. Absolutely. Uh, and that's why we've really avoided the, the retail thing. I mean, you have the story, you have first party customer relationship and all the data you get from it. You have pricing integrity. We don't, we don't do promotions as a brand. Um, we have like a loyalty based, you know, pricing model where customers can qualify for discounts, but it's coupled with other things. Uh, we never market anything promotional, even on Black Friday and Cyber Monday, we're not out there saying like 30% off. So that scares us a bit with, with third party retail because, you know, it's such a big part of uh, what they do to get people into stores. But I think we're at a point now where we can be thoughtful about how we approach it with some good partners. Yeah, you mentioned uh, your loyalty program called Weld in Blue. Give us some perspective of, of what that is. I, I, I'm now a tier two. I think that's what you call it. Oh, nice. It. Um, yeah. So that's, that's good. But I, I'm interested in, in having built some loyalty programs and worked with some of them, your confidence that, that the program is in fact creating higher rebuy rate, higher retention rate for customers uh, in your business? Yeah, I mean, retention, retention rates, uh, reorder rates, and lifetime value are all meaningfully higher than customers who are, you know, falling, you know, into, you know, just into level one or just first-time buyers. So there's no question once a customer reaches a certain level uh, with us that they have a much higher likelihood to be a you know profitable and loyal customer. And a part of that is by definition, right? Because in order to get into level two, you got to spend a certain level. And so, so there's that, there's the implication that you're buying multiple products, you know, so there's a lot, you, you know, there, but, but we see just even in terms of repeat rates and lifetime value, you know, we're talking double digit percentage, you know, higher than a customer who, you know, even just, you know, continues to buy like small numbers of products over time. As you think about your actual physical website and the tech stack associated with it, you know, as a, as a shopper, I would say that, you know, you can get in the store, you can find what you want, you can check out relatively easy, easily. You know, there's a lot of sites out there that have added lots of bells and whistles. What's been your approach to building your site, controlling the feature and function over time? We've always tried to keep it really simple because we really don't want to distract people, um, their time is way more valuable. So, so we've really tried to, to take as much out of it as possible. I think now, I think there's opportunity for us to educate more, to cross sell better and to do those kinds of things. 
at a high level, we've tried to keep things really simple. Um, the one thing that we did from out of the gate and that we still do on some level is we have this uh, application called the savings meter, where as you add product to your cart, you can see your progress towards you know the various loyalty tiers. So that's something that we did that we thought would be like a cool, like interactive application for customers. Uh, but we're rethinking a lot of that stuff and with a real mindset towards, you know, telling better fabric stories, cross-selling better, you know, making it really easy to reorder, those kinds of things. So that's all stuff that we're like in the midst of right now. Great. Businesses like yours are marketing engines, right? You've got to be able to uh, spend your dollars wisely. There's so many different places to spend your money. And, and as importantly, uh, how you uh, analyze the results and the ROAS that you're, you're getting from each of these dollars. Uh, walk us through a little bit about you know, where you're spending your dollars and how you're thinking about the return on the investment. For better or for worse, I don't know, 40% of our, of our ad spend is still with you know, the kind of Google, Facebook ecosystems, which we try really hard to diversify away from and we have meaningfully. Um, but, you know, just in terms of, you know, where you can drive scale and efficiency uh, at the bottom of the funnel, those are generally the channels where, you know, where you do it. So we're in that sandbox along with everybody else riding the waves up and down, but we've diversified meaningfully into other channels radio, podcasting. I talked earlier about video advertising, television video advertising, um, direct mail. Um, these are all you know, very, very productive channels for us. And we look at ROI, you know, we have a pretty conservative attribution model where we're looking generally at same session, last click attribution. We are moving more towards a multi-touch attribution model using our own first party data. Um, so that will, be really helpful because it will uh, enable us to treat different media channels more fairly, I guess, and make sure that we're optimizing the right way. You know, we know that when we spend money on television, our Facebook and our Google uh, advertising programs become more efficient. So they're sort of getting credit for the spend at the top of the funnel. And so just understanding that better is going to be really important for us. You know, but at a minimum, we just, so we're looking at it when we can track track a direct conversion. We're doing that. If we can't, then we'll look at it in total, right? We spent X, we got Y in terms of customers, and that division yields a number that is higher, equal to, or lower than what our target is. So we're able to triangulate against against it, even where we can't directly track it. You're doing some satellite radio as well. Oh yeah, we do satellite radio. We do some terrestrial, but mostly satellite. All the new shows. There's so many different places to spend money. It's uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. And what about um, from a, a checkout um, perspective, payment methods um, for customers? You know, obviously, you know, standard credit cards. But you know, are, have you uh, adopted some of the other types of payment methods that are out there? Yeah, we have Shopify, Apple Pay, uh, PayPal. We're not accepting Bitcoin yet. <laughs> Only Ethereum, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> You have kind of a charitable program, Give Back, Get Mac, yeah. on the site. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it's a, it's a program that's evolved. I mean, the idea is that like uh, the consumer apparel industry is the largest polluter um, of any other, I think, of any other industry, both in terms of like the manufacturing piece, but clothing also um, is a very, very large uh, polluter of landfills. 
And so our point of view was like, well, let's figure out a way to, you know, help people get their old kind of worn out products somewhere else to where it can be used, either repurposed uh, to people, you know, who are in need uh, or repurposed for some other use. Uh, so that's kind of how it started. Um, and we've evolved it quite a bit. Um, you know, we're now really treating it more as like a customer benefit. So it's something that you get access to as a member of Weld and Blue Level 2. And if you recycle, we reward you with, you know, uh, some dollars in your account to go towards your next order. And again, with the same intention of like, um, in, in most cases, the things that we throw out are perfectly fine and can be given a second life uh, for somebody who needs it. And even if somebody's monetizing that, selling it in bulk to a third world country, like, hey, that's better than it ending up in a landfill or having somebody you know, who needs it go with, have to go without it. So you know, that's kind of about one of the, the handful of things that we do just in terms of our corporate citizenship piece. That's great. Good story. Uh, so as we're getting down to the end of the show uh, here, Brian, we do this uh, two-minute drill. I've got seven questions for you. Yeah. First, uh, w- one or two words that comes to uh, mind, okay? All right. All right. First one, a brand that you admire or that inspires you other than Mack Weldon? Patagonia. Okay. That's two shows in a row now with Patagonia coming oh, up. Really? Interesting. Yep. Uh, favorite app on your phone? Favorite app? On my, I think it's my podcast app. <laughs> okay. Uh, the last website other than Amazon or Mac Weldon that you shopped from? Uh, La Colombe Coffee. Okay. Something that you're not good at, but that you wish that you were? I'm not good at saying no. <laughs> okay. Charitable organization that you're passionate about? Uh, city Year. Okay. If you had one superpower, what would it be? To fly. And lastly, other than your family, what's your most prized possession? Other than my family, also so many things. I'm going to go with my Cervelo road bike. How about that? Okay, sounds good. Brian, this was great. Um, where can people reach out to you on social media if they would like to? Yeah, it's bburger3 on Twitter and brianberger underscore at on Instagram. That's mainly where I hang out. Okay. Well, look, thank you for taking the time. Uh, interesting story. I uh, suggest everybody get out there and try some Mack Weldon product. Uh, I know you'll enjoy it. Brian, uh, best of luck to you for continued success. Thank you so much. It was really great spending time with you, and I look forward to staying in touch. That's it. Today's game ball goes to Brian Berger for coming on the Marketing Playbook. To me, today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, Brian spoke about how capital and time are two limited resources that you have while you're running a business. It's not always easy to make changes to your team, but once you've decided that someone is not working out, you need to make the change. Nobody ever likes to terminate an employee, but you cannot ever get back that time that you might be spending on someone who's not a fit for your team. Number two, what does the CEO really do? It's not always the glamour role. You have to be the cheerleader, the traffic cop, the conductor of the orchestra. Your job changes each day, but in the end, you're there to support the team and help facilitate the work that they need to do. And number three, conventional ways of doing things should always be up for debate. If we learned anything in this last year, we need to be able to pivot and work within the limitations that we have. Mack Weldon was able to test into new marketing channels, leveraging the content that they had, and now with the ability to execute better creative, they're poised to take advantage of what they learned. We need to continue to challenge ourselves, even without a pandemic pushing us to do so. 
Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Details Interact and learn more at DetailsInteractive.com. Until next time, the devil is in the details. Yeah.